Are there any questions? Yes. In one of your talks, you were speaking about, I think the word is timidity. Timidity? Yeah, or, and you were saying something that sometimes you have to be a bit bold mm. to say, like, I got so I was just thinking about that, how far that would go in, in our daily lives, like how outspoken should we be about being devotees or inspiring well, Let me address that principle in general and then um, focus on your specific concerns. In general, the idea is what? That there is a difference between pride and confidence. One can know that one has something and be confident of that, especially if it's been given to him, and exude that confidence in speech and stand up and speak strongly, for example. The humility, interestingly, that uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu mandates as an ornament in the Vaishnava decorum, when he says, Trinadapi Sunichena, humility like a blade of grass, uh, this um, statement of his corresponds, as as you may know, with the stage of uh, nishta, which means fixed, determined, uh, like unshakable, and so forth. So you can understand from the fact that these two go together, that that humility is just not some type of timidity. You understand timidity? And it very much, uh, that state of initiative very much involves one's intelligence being actively engaged in Krishna's service and in a way that informs one's uh, tender heart of faith and strengthens it and so forth. So it's about conviction and firmness and, and so forth, while at the same time it's about humility. So this is a very dynamic understanding of humility. And humility, what, just in an abstract sense? No, but humility before God, and God's agent, and so forth. So to do the bidding of, of God and Guru, this is humility, and that may take many different shapes. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur once gave a famous lecture entitled, More Humble Than a Blade of Grass. And it was the custom established by him in his mission, uh, Godiamat, that once a year, on the day of the advent of the Guru, which would be like the birthday of the Guru, then there would be a Guru Puja, where the Guru would assume a big seat and there would be offerings and flowers and whole thing. Students would come together, there would be talks and whatnot. So he established a system like this in his mission. And on one of those occasions, he gave his famous talk. As I say, it was entitled, More Humble in a Blade of Grass. And he said, Something to the effect, look at me, this big beast sitting here above everybody else, towering, you know, over them and taking all this praise and, and whatnot from everyone. And so you may wonder what all this has to do with Mahaprabhu's mandate. So he gave then in a dynamic, as I'm doing briefly, explanation of humility on my command, something like that. So as the command came to him, that's the command. You do that's a service for the service. Now your Vaishnav, natural Vaishnav temperament will be. You want to sit down at the feet of everybody. But if service calls, you have to take a big seat like this. It's an upadi, a designation. It's unnatural. 
for the Vaishnav. It's not his natural or her natural uh, leaning, but for service, okay, then must be done, and then have to speak loudly and say, no, that's wrong, and, and so forth. So on his face, overtly, it may look like well, not very humble. But we have to go inside that and see. As I say, it's not just abstract idea of humility, but humility before God and Guru to do the command of what comes from above, what comes down to follow that. And that command in this world is going to, to follow, is going to have to require some courage, not timidity. You're going to have to be courageous to stand up amidst, in a world of untruth and speak the truth. You know, don't think you're going to become popular. This isn't about being popular at all. Truth will never be popular in a world where untruth is the norm. What may become popular is a watered-down version of the truth. <laughs> but actual truth, Sridhar Marsh once said that he, what did he say, my whole life I haven't practically spent alone, but I've had the luxury of being able to speak the truth, at any rate. So, that's accommodating, that's uh, friendly and endearing and so forth, and maybe not many people on this side, but it endears us to that side, and that is actually the majority. So it's popular, but not in the land where untruth, falsity is the norm. And this is called ekpadvibhuti. In the spiritual sky, it's called tripadvibhuti, like one quarter and three quarters. So the majority is on the other side. This is an aberration, kind of a small, like a cloud in the sky only. So to align oneself with that sector, the higher world, this is the idea. But to do that in this world, then you have to have a little courage. And you, and you have to be willing to say, no, he's wrong, and that's wrong, and this is not virudhapa-siddhanta-dvanta-harani. This was a, a line in the pranam, the prayer, of uh, offering respect to Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, that all his disciples would chant, virudhapa-siddhanta-dvanta-harani. Do you know what it means? Virudha. Rudha means? Rudhabhav. Anger. Virudha. Means very angry. So he would become enraged at anything that was being spoken that was contrary to the Siddhanta of Rupa Goswami, Sanatana Goswami, our Shastra gurus. He would become enraged at that. They called him Singha Guru, Lion Guru. So he was like roaring like a lion. And he didn't fit the typical stereotype conception of, of humility. He gave it a dynamic uh, application. So confidence and um, pride are, are really not the same. There may be a false confidence that is uh, prideful and foolish, but real confidence that comes from, from humility. As we, as we become humble and submissive, to the proper authority, then we get knowledge, we get standing, we let, that's the doorway that lets us in. I mean, as I said before, you, you can't go there with your shoes on. Open up! Open up! I want to come in! Mahaprabhu Sri Chaitanya Dev had a kirtan at the house of Sri Thakur nightly for three, four hours. Karadhar could come, Sri Thakur could come, but his mother couldn't come. His wife couldn't even, well, I think his wife could come. So, anyway, so many people in the house, his own house couldn't come. 
Mahaprabhu restricted who could come, not because they were men or women, but because he only was allowing certain confidential devotees into that kirtan because it was a very high kirtan. That kirtan is synonymous with the, like Rasalila. It's taking place every night in the house of um, Thakur in the form of kirtan. Krishna's flute that he calls the gopis with has come in the form of the murdanga. And their ankle bells, are, which are so beautiful in that rasa dance, they're coming in the form of the kartals, reincarnating in Gorlila. This kind of kirtan is going on in the house courtyard of Shiva's Thakur. You can go there today to that place. It's very beautiful. Pray that you could have admission to that kirtan. This is the whole idea of Gaudiya to get admission there. So at any rate, people, people try to get in. One man said, hey, look, I'm pure. I only drink milk. It means I don't even pick vegetables. Just whatever comes from the cow's udder, that's I live on that. It's considered to be like pure in terms of, you know, you are what you eat. So how you eat is very much in Indian society. And any society really determines kind of what you are. So if you eat unclean things, you're unclean. If you, there's not a lot of violence in your involved in your eating and so forth and so on, this will be determined like this. So he ate only milk. So it's a kind of material purity, standard of material purity. And he made the neck complaint, well, I want to get in that kirtan. Hey, some of these other people, they're eating vegetables and other things. <laughs> and I, they can go in, why can't I go in? And Mahaprabhu wouldn't let him in the kirtan. He cursed Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and said, He cursed him. You'll never have a happy family life. I curse you. You'll never give a good good marriage that will last and children. And Mahaprabhu said, Haribo. And Bhagavatam says about him what? Dharmishta Arya Vachasa. On the words of a Brahmin, he was forced, Dharmishta Arya Vachasa Yadagat Aranyam. Aranyam means forest, to enter the forest. That means to become a sannyasi, to leave the, leave the world. And chase after the people bewildered by Maya. That's our good fortune. And that's the blessing of Bhakti Devi also. Srimati Vishnu Priya Devi. Bhakti Vinod identified Vishnu Priya Devi with Bhakti Devi. Sometimes the Buddhists ask, who is Bhakti Devi? This was his answer. Vishnu Priya. She gave Mahaprabhu permission. All right, take sannyas, go. Chase after them. When it became known that he was thinking about that, she, of course, became affected. She approached him, her head down. He said, what's on your mind? Nothing. No, no, what's on your mind? Nothing. Come on, out with it, say. And she said, I've heard this kind of rumor that you're thinking of taking sannyas. Then he revealed his form to her and her form to her and said, just see, Devi, in this leela, our business is only to cry for the conditioned souls. This is what we've come for this time. So she gave permission. She cried, he cried for us. So that Brahmin's curse, he took it as a blessing. Of course, that's not really the force behind why Mahaprabhu is coming after this, but externally it is, and it, and it seeks to teach us a point, too, a point we're making, that not just anybody could enter that kirtan. There were other people who didn't try to force their way in. It's not our right. Bhakti is not our right. We have within us the capacity for bhakti. 
We are a unit of dedicating energy. All Shakti comes from the Swarup Shakti. So we are one of the Shaktis of Bhagwan. We have our origin in the Swarup Shakti. We are conscious like that. So there's like trace element of Swarup Shakti in us. I mean, that's what you can say very rarely. The Tatasta Shakti is like a partial manifestation of the Swarup Shakti. It needs to be in connection with the whole of the Swarup Shakti to function in that realm, in the Leela. Without that connection through Bhakti, which comes from up to down, no capacity. So, at any rate, it's not our right. It's a grant. It's a gracious grant. It's a blessing. We originate from the Paramatma. See, the Paramatma has a Leela. Paramatma means the overseer of the world. This aspect of the Absolute. We are told in Bhagavatam, Vadanti tat tat vidas tat vajad kyanamadvayam. Mm-hmm. So, Brahman, Paramatman, Bhagwan, three faces of the Absolute, of the non-dual Absolute, corresponding with three paths, Gyan, Yoga, Bhakti, and fully uh, functioning and representing different aspects of the Absolute. The Absolute is ecstasy, and ecstasy exists and ecstasy is cognizant of itself. So Krishna Bhagwan is ecstasy. And then you have Brahman and Paramatma, you need to be the cognitive and the existential aspects of the Absolute manifest in a, in a profound way. So the Paramatma is, is one such, overseeing the world. You know, the why of everything cannot be answered. How it all works, that's another thing. There's no answer to why God exists. He does and in different ways. And so, there's a material world. We can't say why is there, but we can say that there is, and then we can explain how it works and so forth. So, Bhagwan has this kind of a shakti, maya shakti. And it's overseen by paramatma. And that paramatma, as one, becomes many. So many jiva souls, out of joy, Jiva souls come in touch with the Maya. Then the Lord comes with different avatars to be the Savior. People complain, wait a minute, it doesn't sound fair. Some of us got stuck in the material world, and some are eternally liberated. They claim fault. God is not fair. You cannot make that claim. If you want to really think like that, and you look at it closely, you'll see you're the ones that are being favored. The ones that are here are the are ones that are getting the favor. Where's the question of favor to those who are are eternally liberated? You show a favor to someone who needs one. The Buddha Jeev, the conditioned soul, Nitya Buddha, he needs a favor. So Bhagavan shows favor to us. You want to show, you think his favoritism is that some are eternally liberated. No, his favoritism is towards those who need a favor. That's us. Doesn't show favor to them in the same way. Of course, besides that, as I've explained other, other times, from the point of view of the Achinti Beta Beta equation, one and different nature of the Absolute. If he's one, then there's no one to blame. It's only him. He's doing as he sees fit. And if you look at it from the different point of view, difference between the, ourselves and Bhagwan, then it's our fault, not his. We have the desire, we're manifesting it all the time, the desire to be independent. So at any rate, the some souls there come from this, this side. They can go to that side. 
By how? By the grace of Bhagwan. And he readily makes it available. So, no problem, but it's not our right. We can demand it. So we cannot go break down the house, the door at Sri Thakur's house to try to get in. But some souls, rather than doing that, they sat quietly on the bank of the Ganges and they, they wanted to go in, but they knew they weren't qualified. They were pious people. So what happened? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came out of his house for them and brought his kirtan to the streets to collect us up. So they were humble. They sat humbly. They knew we're not qualified. It's not our right, but we want so he, he answers to them for that. He's susceptible to this this humility. This is inviting to him. I mean, if a sadhu meets a humble person, he thinks, I'll spend some time here because this will go in. What I say will go inside and stay in there. You have to be humble to be in what they call like a teachable moment. So in this way, it's kind of the opening. And so when you're humble, then you get open to all this knowledge and understanding and power, so you become confident. You're humble because it's come as a, in the form of grace, and you're humbled by it, the measure of it, the, how wonderful it is, and so forth. But you're confident, you, you got it, and you share it, so there's some place for that. So with humility comes surety, certainty, confidence, but not pride. So then in everyday dealings, that's another thing. We should be strong about what we are and what we stand for and, and so forth. But it's not that we go parade around everywhere and tell everybody we meet on every occasion. That, you know, give them a lecture on Vedanta. You're in Maya, by the way, as you pay your parking ticket. By the way, you're in Maya. Did you know that, Hare Krishna? And uh, you're not that body. you got to be intelligent and you're where you interact with people, and you have to look for the same principle. You have to look for a teachable moment. If you know if people want to know something, then if they don't want to know, then trying to tell them is usually counterproductive. You should act in such a way that people will want to know. What are you about? What are you all about? You got those beads and everything. You act different, you know. And then you tell them a little bit, you know, a little something, and they they remain more eager that way. Don't try to beat him over the head with a bunch of religious dogma, necessarily. But, yeah, you have conviction about what you, what you believe in, but you have to know where you are, too. Where expressing that will be appreciated, and where it won't, and it won't be appropriate. I mean, you know, there are certain places you wouldn't just voice all your convictions about Krishna consciousness, because it wouldn't bode well Materially, they might, who knows what they might do to you in, in some places. Does that help? What else? Another question? Yes. Continuing a little bit on this thing, if we like, we have some conviction of this thing we're doing and we want to spread it, we want to work on that, but then again we realize we have very limited capacity to do so, our understanding is very minute. So, how to balance this? Well, then, then you do according to your understanding, according to your capacity. So, if you're convinced, then your understanding of the, the vast theory and so forth is somewhat limited, and your realization is, is limited, but on some level, you're educated, 
convinced and realized on some level. So, on that level, then you, if you want to reach out to others, then you do, in a real way. I mean, you should become a better person by involvement in Krishna consciousness. And then, then your interactions with people will be have an effect on them. I think um, that's the key. You have to speak according to your realization. And you may say things sometimes that are beyond your realization, but you may also footnote it. But these are the things I've been taught, and so I'm trying to realize them and so forth. You know, like Kashangi's comics, they're, they're nice in a way because they're very real. It's like, here's a person, she's involved in a spiritual practice, but it's not a facade. She's readily acknowledging in the comics that she's got distractions and lapses of faith or questions and, and so forth. That's kind of an honest representation. And I think that that's attractive. So, rather than to pretend one has more realization than one does, that will maybe work in the short term, but not in the long term. Does that help? I have to think about this. Yeah. What else? Guru Maharaj, you sometimes explain Krishna Leela uh, and how how after Krishna goes to Mathura, Mother Yashoda and Ananda uh, mm. Maharaj, they start thinking. Mm-hmm. Then it begins all, all over again. Is this pertaining to to the spiritual world or or the Aprakat Leela or the Aprakat Leela? Either way, these Leelas are explained in a, in a kind of a linear way because that's the way we think and so forth, but they're really quite multidimensional. Uh, one person can live in one Leela or one part of one day of Krishna's Leela forever, and, uh, for example. So <laughs> it's a huge affair. It's going in so many circles. That's just a way of talking about it. Union and separation and how the Leela is moving between the two and and so forth. But in the Aprakat Leela, for the most part, in the Aprakat Leela, the unmanifest Leela, there's, there's more like a knowledge that he went away once in the Prakat Leela, and it could happen again. We should be careful. Something like that. It's called Deva Leela, so it's there's a little bit more Aishvarya there, knowledge there, understanding, than in the Prakat Leela, which is it's completely Madhurya. It's completely like human-like. That's why the Golok is considered a partial manifestation of Gokul. Of the, the Aprakat Leela is a partial manifestation of the Prakat Leela, the manifest Leela, the Leela that manifests on earth. That's the whole full-blown thing. And so they have experience of that that keeps going on and I mean, you think about it, the Prakat Leela is always going on somewhere, and the Aprakat Leela is always going on somewhere. So it's rather complex. But in the least, for example, as Jiva Goswami explains, they're thinking about the Prakat Leela in the Aprakat Leela. They have remembrance of it all. Their earthly incarnation. Of course, there's always problems on earth, so they're worried that such problems could occur in, in the highest heaven also that Krishna might leave town. So, 
maybe you can think of it like in the Prakatlila, he's gone for so long, and then they go crazy, and then he comes back and goes to the uppercut and starts over again, something like that. But more or less, it's just it's it's a way of saying how the lila moves between union and separation, union and separation. The devotees are united and and separated from the Lord, and the longing and separation makes for the beauty of the, the union. There's a lot of discussion about this union and separation, very technical topics and so forth. Which is better than the other one? Is a, a kind of a thing. And really, the, we like to emphasize the the separation because that's the entry and of course it's sweet also and high and but you can't have one without the other the devotees always want to unite Radha and Krishna what else yes what about like you said that the devotee can stay in one part or one moment of the Leela forever and you <laughs> say that that but still, like, there has to be union and separation. But if one is in the part where there's only, like, union or only separation, what about that? Yeah, there's union and separation there, too. If he stays in one part, let's say he stays in one part of the day of Krishna's Leela, then sometimes Krishna's going to be there mm. when he's supposed to be there, and at other times he's not. So he'll experience separation in that same place. Mm. Something like that. <laughs> the point is that this, these things can only be talked about so much, beyond words, beyond mind. They talked about in the way that we get our mind around it a little bit, but if we get our mind around it too much, then what happens? Then we try to like, what about, what about, but I mean, it's only this big, and how many cows could fit in that spot, and and wait a minute, and then you see, and it's becoming counterproductive. You're thinking about it too much. It, it's user-friendly. Goswamis coming from the land of faith to hear they speak about it as much as one can. They can't do justice to it, but enough that we can get a grip on it and then the idea is do what's necessary to go there which means going beyond the mind but if we get too much you want to you get a grip on it and you want to get a bigger grip this is the tendency of the mind you want to measure the thing and have it all fit between your your ears but it doesn't work like that so when you start finding that happening that's why that's why you have to you have to back off and think oh I'm getting over over intelligent here over overly intellectual in my approach and that's not the vehicle for going there that's why for example when Prabhupada was once asked by one of his students that Prabhupada had said that Nanda Maharaj had 900,000 cows yes and then he said but it said that Vrindavan is this many kilometers wide and this many long and this is the circumference yes but I did a calculation, and the 900 cows, 1,000 cows couldn't fit in that area, or to speak of all the people. And I was reading on and Prabhupada said, you read too much. <laughs> that was his answer. So, you have to be a little careful. Your, your intellect is counterfeit currency. It cannot buy you any real estate in a land of love, a land beyond death. It has no purchasing power there. There's a way that you can use it in relation to the means to go for going there, which is faith, to help strengthen your faith. We call that Shastra Yukti, to learn how to reason within the Shastra, within the parameters of what it is, what is Krishna consciousness. Then you can grow. That's an exercise to grow your faith, where your intellect is being employed by your faith rather than your faith is being subject to the scrutiny of your your intellect. 
faith is beyond the intellect. It doesn't come to us through intellect. It's a, it comes through grace. It's, it's very subtle. Intellect is the subtlest part of our material being, so it's easy to misidentify it with something, with spiritual, and you have to be very careful about that. You don't want to not use your intellect. That's one to err in one direction, and you don't want to be to be abused by your intellect. That's the other end of the spectrum. It's a dead thing, so if it's left to its own self, it will take the life out of spirituality. But if it's properly tamed with scripture and Guruvani and so forth, then it has some, some utilization. We should be careful about that. It says that we're, it's a very strong aspect of our conditioning to want to know and analyze and fit it all, get a handle on it, measure it. That's maya, to measure. You want to measure. And you can measure infinity. It's a folly. Stop trying that. But this is how we're we're just possessed like this. This is our conditioning, so it has to be overcome. It's not easy. So we give these simple practices like chant Hare Krishna. It's not like an intellectual activity. Hare Krishna. It seems too simple. Offer some flowers. Of course, reading is there. Studying is there. And then we study. We, we this is what we, our intellect keeps getting hit with. You're a fool. You're counterfeit. This intellect it's limited, and that's speaking to your soul. That just the self, the heart can come out and take its place, rightful place above the intellect. So don't be abused by your intellect. I mean, you see the extent to which an intellect can abuse somebody. That's what we call atheism. The guy's done away with himself. He's killed himself by his intellect. I mean, it's just so simple, common sense. What's superior, consciousness or matter? And they say, well, wait, what's the difference? Consciousness is matter. Consciousness is an is a evolved state of matter, then? And if you even want to say that, it's an evolved state, then it's, well, it's, it's either that, not matter, or it's an evolved state. I mean, it's, it's more important. <laughs> it should be given precedence. But do they give it precedence? If it has precedence, then it, it, it should have some power. We think it's different than matter. All they can say is we can't say much about it, but it, it happens and matter becomes alive at a certain point. That's what they say. Consciousness is living matter, and then there's dead matter. You know, it's a huge evolutionary jump for chemistry to become biology. You can show some apparent evolution within biology of species, but how did chemicals become life. Where's the evolution there? It's lacking. You know, all the, they have this powerful evidence for, for evolution, but to this, biologically speaking, but how chemicals became, this we're probably used to say, well, if chemicals can be, then here's some chemicals. Make life. Make life out of them. I mean, like Sridhar Maharaj used to say, stone, what is a stone? It's a conception. So which is which? Is the stone inside the consciousness or is consciousness inside the stone? Does consciousness come out of the stone and then define it? Or does the stone come out of the mind or out of consciousness? You understand? Stone is a it's just a conception. You could say, well, it's an objective reality, but of course there's a lot of philosophy that would 
bring that into question to some extent, how much the objective world exists at all. So it seems simple, for the simple. Consciousness is superior to matter. I was talking with Brindaranya's father once. He's a psychologist, doctorate in psychology, and he said, "Well, I, you know, why do you want to make a difference between the two, consciousness and matter? Why do you have to make a difference?" I said, "Well, you know, they're completely different. <laughs> if you talk about them, if you want to analyze the two, they're completely different. So why shouldn't we not make a distinction between the two? Matter has no experience. Consciousness is all about experience. And what's the biggest experience that we have as conscious beings?" What's the most important experience that we have? The most profound experience that we have? That we experience. We experience that we experience. Wow. What am I? So, what was the question we were talking about? Was it Brito's question? No. <laughs> was, it yours. was it yours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the same. Oh, yeah. yeah. To fit it all inside of your mind. Be careful about that. Even the soul, consciousness, won't answer to the mind but to speak of God. It's beneath the dignity of God and the soul to answer to intellect, to come into court of the intellect. Let's prove your existence. Prove yourself. <laughs> you have nothing without me. Your court is nothing without me. The court of intellect is nothing without consciousness. And consciousness is different than intellect. Computers have intellect. Do they have consciousness? Not independently of bong, bong, bong. Yeah, that's a, somebody pressing the button. <laughs> so, it's a folly. Intellect wants to bring the uh, soul to court. And bring God with you while you're at it. We're going to try Him too, right here in our court. And who will be the jury? The mind and the senses? Five working senses and five knowledge-gathering senses in the mind. You're one juror short, according to the American system of justice. Anyway, you need 12 jurors, one short. It's a false hung jury. Cannot ever come to a decision, really. So this is a kind of eternal debate. But, but anyone who has any, who's taken a little bit of, of a different course for knowing, a spiritual course for knowing that which is spiritual, which makes sense, then you will not go to that courthouse. That's a farce. The accused will not even show up. The soul will not even show up in the court of the intellect. Sorry. No time. If he doesn't show up, they declare he doesn't exist. Just see. But this is abuse. Intellect is abusing you. You've denied your own self that you exist. You're just a, a bubble in time, here today and gone tomorrow. So then if that's the case, that's what you want to render as your verdict, uh, your conclusion, then what's to be excited about? In an absolute sense, then what are values? It's all relative. So to get all excited about any other cause, it's a bit silly. It's just a game, just a folly. But they are all so indignant against God and soul, and so so righteous about it. concerned about this issue and that issue, and ready to fight to the death. And what? What? Your own teaching says this is relative. There's no absolute value, isn't it? 
How can you get ex- so excited about anything? Does that make sense? There's no value, absolute value. So this this is how the intellect can abuse us. Therefore, we need good guidance, help from above, bring us out from underneath that kind of oppression. In the most undeveloped forms of human life, Aboriginal society and native cultures and so forth, you find a sense of God. And in the most advanced and educated, civilized sections of human society, you find that there's a sense of God too. There may be also a sense that God doesn't exist. So what is the difference between the Aboriginal and the civilized? It's, well, it's this application of possession of an application of intelligence. So our conclusion is some have applied it wrong and some have applied it right. The basic sense that's there in, in native society, some people have confirmed it with their bearing down on the issue with their intellect and thus are pursuing it. And some people have reasoned it away. We say that that latter sector, that's, that's just an improper use of reasoning. They just want to call it superstition and so on. But people are equally applying intellect to come to a theistic conclusion as they are to a... More so, in my opinion, but at least equally as those are who come to an atheistic conclusion. And the latter group, as I said, they're abusing themselves. That's, that's just the embarrassing condition of the soul and material existence. What else? All the Goswamis, we hear very little about Randunath Bhattu Goswami. It's almost like he he doesn't fit in together with the others. Can you tell us something about him? Well, I think that um, one thing we can say about him is that one of the reasons that we don't hear much about him is because, for example, it is mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita by the author, Vishnu's copyright, that Raghunath Bhatta insisted that you can't say anything about me. I give my blessings to the book as long as you, for the most part, just keep me out of it. So this was his good quality. Didn't want to be in, in the limelight. But um, there are some things said about him, and I have visited the um, principal center in Vrindavan that represents the lineage coming from Raghunath Bhattu Goswami. It's near the Banki Bihari temple. Nice devotees there. They worship him as an incarnation of Srimad Bhagavatam, along with another Garadhar Bhatta, who was, a, I guess, an associate of Mahaprabhu from Puri. Raghunath Bhatta was the son of Tapan Mishra, lived in Banaris and met Mahaprabhu there. Later he joined Mahaprabhu in Puri, and um, he was an expert cook, it's mentioned, and he used to sing the Bhagavatam in different melodies for the pleasure of the devotees, Bhagavatam verses. So he was very, apparently very well versed in the Bhagavatam. And there, as I say, at his main center in Vrindavan, they worship him as an incarnation of Srimad Bhagavatam. Very nice people. I wanted to go back there and I can appreciate your interest because I had a similar interest, but I didn't get the opportunity. But when you go to Vrindavan, you should try to go there. They were some English-speaking people there, and they're very, um, you know, honored to have 
he come as a guest, and just kind of happened in on them, and so forth. So there's not a lot of information. Maybe in Bhakti Ratnakar, which I don't know if it's that's been, I don't think it's been translated in English. Parts of it have. Maybe some more information there, or from his own group, they must have some biographical sketch and much more details. But perhaps out of deference to his own insistence, at least that he voiced the Krishna's Kaviraj, that he not be put in the limelight, they have kept him, him in the background. But he's one. Yeah, so we don't have any literature, do we, that is attributed to him. It said that he was the pujari in the Radha Govinda temple, and he used to cook for Radha Govinda. Whatever he could, he would cook, and whatever he couldn't cook physically, he cooked in his mind. He offered these wonderful feasts to Radha Govinda every day. And something happened in Jaipur, I believe. The king in Jaipur had a visitation or something like that. He got some prashad from there or something. Then he had a dream. He liked that prashad and then he had a dream. And Krishna said, if you think that's good, you should see the other things he's cooking for me in his mind. Wow. He was known for his cooking. So the king had a realization, a mystic vision. Govindaji was very pleased, and then he went there, and that was, had something to do with him giving the money also to build an existing temple, which is a huge stone edifice there, a famous temple in Vrindavan. So I don't know much more than those few anecdotes and, and something, as I say, about his nature. It's mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita. Raghunath Bhattu Goswami. Hmm. Tapan Mishra was from Bengal, probably from Nadia. Where Raghunath Bhatt was born, either there or Banaras, probably there in Bengal, moved to Banaras. He was old enough to hear something from Mahaprabhu at that time. She must have been quite a bit younger than Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. What else? Yes. And we also used this technique to, you know, cooking food in our heads. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Manasi Puja it's called, the Puja in your mind, yeah, sure. There's a nice story in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, and Prabhupada cites it in his Nectar Devotion, how a Brahman was cooking for the deity, and he didn't have much facility, he was living in the forest and whatnot, so he would, he would cook every day a big pot of this sweet rice, he didn't have any milk physically, or rice, or sugar. He cooked this big pot of sweet rice and offered to his deity. Very elaborately, he would go to the banks in his mind. He would go to the bank of the river. He would have golden pots. In golden pots, he would secure the water for washing and so forth. And then he had a, this extraordinary cow that he would get this milk from on, on these super excellent grasses and and so forth. And milk that and, you know, the rice and put together and he would... Favorite with camphor and oh, really the elaborate meditation he had of his whole puja, and then the final act was cooking and offering the, the sweet rice. So he would offer it every day, and then one day in his he was so absorbed in his meditation that he thought, oh, "Okay, I've cooked it now, and I wonder is it is it cool enough to offer? It has to cool down a little bit to, to be offered." So he's waiting and thinking, "Well, let me." His mind is thinking, let me put my finger in it and see if it's cool enough. He put his finger in it and it was too hot. And he went, oh, it burned. And he broke his meditation. And there his hand was blistered. And there was Narayan came in a Vaikuntha airplane to pick him up. So 
Mind, yes. But let's have some, some training about that, how to cook for Krishna. But um, you better cook something too, physically. You're a little thin, you know, you need to eat. <laughs> you know, the whole idea is to absorb your mind. So you can find things like that to preoccupy your mind with. That will be good. Generally, before the devotees do the Seva Puja in the morning, if they worship their deity, they do it all in their mind first and then proceed and do it physically. One devotee of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he said Mahaprabhu had returned from Puri to Namadweep and he was going to go to Vrindavan from there. So this devotee decided if Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was going to go to Vrindavan, I'm going to build him a road. So he sat in his meditation and he built a road. And it had beautiful palm trees growing on either side and lakes and swans, you know, beautiful scenery. And it's a really elaborate road he built in his mind for Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And he was building and building that mind and at a certain point it stopped. He couldn't go any further. The road would not go any further. So he awoke from his trance and he said, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu will not make it to Vrindavan. He will only go this far. And everybody was shocked. What are you talking about? Sure enough, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu only went that far. There he met Rup Sanatan, Ram Keli, it's called Kanai Natashala. In that place, he didn't go any further. And he took Sanatan's advice and whatever, he went, then he went next time. So in other words, what happens? That road was really built in the mind of that devotee. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was walking on that. It looked like he was walking on the average road, but he was actually walking on the road that this devotee created in his meditation. <laughs> yes. So, what goes on in the mind of a, of a devotee, that's more real than than the everyday objective experience of common people, if there is anything as such as objective experience. I don't know if there is. What else? Yes, the... Mm, yeah, the, the we were comparing uh, Azuru uh, to fire, and you said that one should not uh, get too close or you get burned. So, what do you mean? Well, okay. it means that um, it's just like Krishna, the deity. The deity generally doesn't speak. Why? Because if he spoke, then you'd be in big trouble. He'd say, give me more, give me this, do this, do that. and you So he's quiet so that you can think you've got your own life and he's part of it. And Gradually, gradually, then as you become more pure, more, then, then he may speak to you. So if we get too close, then we may not be able to take advantage because we have so many desires and so forth. So, although we're in close company, we don't take advantage, we fall asleep, we don't, we can't listen, and so on, so, some, so he creates some, some appropriate distance relative to the different students and their aptitude and, and so forth, so that they'll be able to flourish. This is the idea, because Al said you can't be too far away from the fire. You can come closer, that's all right. <laughs> that's the general idea. One has to see for oneself. One has to you know, tell one's own temperature a little bit. And not everybody can live close because they won't necessarily flourish in that environment. Now, some will. Does that help? 
So we'll stop there and then you have Arctic, Prashadam, 